Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast with your host, Dr. Dana Pung, and myself, Dr. Elise Hutt. Join us as we talk to inspiring clinicians who have redefined their careers. Welcome to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, Dr. Josh Case. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for coming on the show. To start with, I want to give our listeners a bit of an idea of what you currently do for work. Can you give us a run through of everything you're doing at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got a couple of strings to my bow. The first is that I still do a little bit of clinical medicine. I do about three or four days a month in various locum roles across New South Wales, Queensland and anywhere the wind takes me. But I guess the main thing that I do is I run a company called Go Locum, which is a medical workforce marketplace that captures hospital roster vacancies and surfaces them in an Airbnb-like interface for doctors. So that's been around probably the last two or so years of my life is been taking this concept of a better way to do locum work, to navigate locum work. And I had developed a pretty strong background in software engineering. And so I decided to put them to good use and try and make this really difficult industry a lot more efficient and better for everyone. So kind of a weird combination of things, I guess, working in clinical medicine and then working in software engineering at my startup. But I've come to find that I guess having what I really want in my life is A, variety and B, flexibility. And by having both of these two things, I'm able to meet both of those criteria, which is awesome. It sounds amazing. I want to get a bit of a sense of where you started out. Did you go straight through med from school or did you do something else first? And what drove that decision to get into med in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I grew up in Melbourne and finished high school down there where I was living with my family at the time. And I, I think there were multiple things that drove me into medicine. A lot of, I guess, the, the cliche things like I was getting quite good grades and what did people with good grades do? They went into medicine. I guess I also loved the concept of physiology. I played a lot of competitive sport growing up and was really interested in sports science and VO2 max and oxygen requirements and all that sort of stuff. And I guess trying to combine those two things, medicine was a pretty natural fit, I guess. I applied to medicine everywhere in the country and got in up at UQ into their sort of school leavers program. So you do a three-year undergrad and then a four-year postgrad. I guess I can remember being sort of 18 or 19 and looking at my friends from school who took anywhere from one to three years off to go travel or have multiple gap years or go to music festivals in Budapest or all that sort of stuff. And I can remember feeling a bit worried about those people, worried that they'd lost the way maybe or that they were, why weren't they focusing on their career and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, I was at university chipping away end to end till I was in my mid-20s. And then probably over the last five years or so, I've probably backflipped completely on that. I now worry more about the people who are like me, who don't try anything different, who try to, you know, in the creative careers in medicine group, we talk a lot about the conveyor belt of medicine. And I worry about the people who don't try something different, who don't travel, who don't take a risk on a business or try something different in a joining a theater production or basically doing something different to insulate yourself from, I guess, things like burnout and the, the rigors of our profession, which are testing to anyone. Yeah, absolutely. How many years out of uni are you now? So this is my PGY4 year. So I graduated from the University of Queensland in 2019. Although I've had a bit of an atypical career in that I've only done one of those years full-time. So I did my internship full-time and I think I knew very early in that internship that I wasn't going to have. In fact, I probably knew 
prior to my internship that I wasn't going to have a typical career. I had actually, over the Christmas prior to starting my clinical internship, I'd done a health technology internship at a startup in Tel Aviv in Israel. And there was about 100 employees at this startup because they'd raised a whole bunch of money. And I was sitting amongst the machine learning engineers who would have these very heated arguments in Hebrew over the cool health technologies that they were building. And maybe if there's time then, we can talk a bit about that. But working on bleeding edge stuff, just absolutely, you know, for those who don't know, Israel is essentially the Silicon Valley of the Middle East. There's heaps and heaps of really cool tech startups there. They have a very strong cybersecurity division of their armed forces. And basically everyone does their two years of compulsory service in the armed forces and then takes all their cybersecurity skills and goes out and makes all these cool startups. And so I had this real culture shock where I'd come from this five-week internship in Tel Aviv where everything they were working on the coolest technology you could possibly imagine. And then I came straight back to, I don't think they'll mind me mentioning them, Toowoomba Hospital, which was an excellent hospital to do my internship at, but it wasn't exactly the technology hub of Australia. Lots of pen and paper, lots of faxing, lots of, I guess, lots of things that probably listeners of the podcast will connect to. But I had this real culture shock coming from Tel Aviv to Toowoomba and then realizing that there had to be a better way. So literally within about the first month of me being an intern, I was looking for ways to use my software skills that I'd acquired previously to start improving my workflow. And I worked on a couple of things and some that got a fair bit of steam until I guess towards the end of my internship, I solved a pretty big administrative problem for one of the wards at the hospital using software that I had written. I got into a situation where I was creating so much value for the hospital that I started to get the attention of Queensland Health and not necessarily in a good way. They started to look at my innovations with a very risk, risk-averse risk mindset, which I think is their role and is a reasonable thing for them to do. But it quickly made me realize that this desire to innovate and to improve our workflows was not going to happen in the way that I wanted it to in that it wasn't going to happen organically inside the hospital system and eventually flourish into a thing that would be widely applicable and in a way that would allow me to capture some of the value for it. You know, if I'm putting my own hours into this, how can I capture some of the value? And I quickly realized that unfortunately, inside public hospitals are not a very organic way for that to happen. And so I said, I need to leave full time. I need to reduce my clinical hours to pursue this sort of stuff. And in January of 2021, I wound back to part-time 0.5 FTE, which that was, I guess, historically a thing that was predominantly used by often women having children or men having children to sort of allow them to meet those obligations, but not for fun or to pursue these other things. And so I shared my job for a year, got further and further into this all this health tech stuff and yeah, haven't looked back. <laughs> mm, amazing. I imagine... I don't actually know. I've not worked in Toowoomba Hospital, but in the network that I started out, it definitely wasn't a done thing that people went 0.5 in the resident year, even the people with kids. So I imagine that might have been met with a little bit of resistance. Oh, absolutely. I do remember feeling, and this is probably a self-imposed thing, I do remember feeling that the people that went part-time are the ones who it wasn't working out for, who couldn't hack it, who weren't performing well, who couldn't deal with the intensity and the demands of the job. I remember, and that, again, this was probably more of a self-imposed thing. I remember feeling like I couldn't manage it. And that was something that I think as a person who got good grades in high school and was a type A personality that I had took a lot of time to internally digest. I can also remember a handful of supervisors that were, or anyone, even my peers, when I'd say things, I would say, oh, hey, I'm thinking about 
dramatically reducing my hours so that I can work on this technology stuff. And then they would say, I think some of them, some people would say immediately, oh, but how's that going to look on your application for anesthetics or for ICU? Or how are you going to get on working part-time? Like, how's that going to work? And that was, I don't know, probably a quarter to a third of people. That was immediately their, their first thought. And I guess the penny hadn't really dropped that I guess I wasn't really looking, even though I had been saying for the last year or two, that's what I was looking at. I don't think in my heart of hearts, that's really what I wanted to do. Certainly not at that time. Then there was actually a really refreshing other side to it where people who were just so supportive, I guess maybe people who are a bit more cynical or a bit more burnt out, I guess were a bit more open to the idea of trying something else. And some people would say, oh, that's so awesome. Go for it. Just go experiment. I wish I could do that. And then I guess knowing what I know now, they totally can do that. I think people are hesitant to stick their neck out and I guess try something a little bit different. I guess if there's one message that I could send listeners home from this podcast with, it's that it doesn't have to be all or nothing. And I've proved that even at really the most juvenile stages of your career at PGY2, you can go to 0.5 and try something different. Try a tech startup, try learning a new instrument, whatever, travel a bit more. This is something I did actually in my PGY3 year while working 0.5 clinically. I was job sharing with someone. So we would both take one line in the roster and then divvy it up between us. And what we did is I wanted to go away for a big log stint. So I went, ended up going backpacking for about three months. And what I did is I got my job share partner and said, look, you just work for this, these two and a bit months. And then I'll work these two and a bit months. And it gives you long breaks of time where you can go out and do something different, like travel, for example. So Tying that all back, it doesn't have to be a thing where you have to completely give up on your training dreams, your specialist training. You don't have to completely give up on the clinical career. You can, as early as PGY2, reduce your hours and then try something different. Just see what happens. If it sticks, it sticks. If not, you'd have absolutely no problems returning to full-time at some point in the future and going down that road again. <clears throat> That's so great to hear. I feel like not many people would see that as an option. So. Good to know it exists. And I think you have to be a little bit flexible in terms of your approach there. Like talking about most people in their junior careers in a public hospital, you're probably going to have to be flexible in terms of the type of terms that you get, rotations that you get. But I think the easiest way to do it is to find someone who has similar, who is like-minded to you and then apply together as a package deal and make it as easy as possible for the hospital. So say, look, we will come and work for you. We'll be one line on the roster. You don't have to change pretty much anything. And you just give us the roster and we'll hand out the shifts between us and make it easy for the hospitals to administrate it because unfortunately they're not very well set up to provide the flexibility at the scale that we would all like to be or like to have. And so making it easy as possible is a bit of a life hack to getting this across the line. Love a good hack. I'm interested to know how you got software engineering skills. Was that something you studied formally or was it an interest? Yeah, well, it was... Its absolute origins are that I grew up playing a lot of computer games and was a generally a very geeky guy. Like I was into the chess club, absolutely loved playing chess, really geeky. And then in the early years of high school, I started experimenting with sort of game design studios, like very simple ones, really designed for kids where you can drag and drop behaviors into an environment. When you press the up key, Mario should jump, very sort of simple stuff. And then I guess if you keep chipping away at that, you start to hit the let's say, the limits of the functionality of that sort of thing. And then to get more complex functionality, you need to write some software. But of course, you don't know how to write any software. So you start furiously Googling or you start YouTubing and you start copying and pasting little bits of software that other people have written and putting them into your game. 
and then eventually hit a point where, oh, well, that script does almost what I want it to do. What can I change? I want it to jump a little bit higher. How can I change that? And you start to basically modify these scripts that other people have written to slightly better meet your needs. And then you can see how there's this spectrum where as time goes on and on, you get better at understanding what you're reading and editing until eventually you can start writing stuff yourself. And so for me, as a 13, 14 year old, I guess I had an imagination that was this big. And for the listeners at home, I'm gesturing wildly around like a very large size. And then I had a skill set that was tiny. And so I had lots and lots of very ambitious projects that I was never able to publish or ship in any kind of way. But I did get what it did give me is a real resolve to persist in the face of problems or a stubbornness, I guess you could say which continued to grow. And so after trying to make a few video games, I eventually at some point across the line, I switched to making phone apps. So I made a couple of apps to help people study their VCE or their JetC or their work on their ATAR courses. And, you know, I had a couple of those apps that were like went a bit viral to an extent, which showed me there's something to this. This isn't just a hobby mucking around with games. This might actually be a thing that you can pursue. And then by the time I got to university and especially med school, I guess I was spending more time making websites and quizzes for my classmates. Like I had one thing that was this exam generator thing where you could sort of a practice exam generator. You could come here and tick all the medical topics that you'd learned that semester and hit generate exam. It would generate an exam for you. And lots of my classmates were using this. When I was working on those projects, I convinced myself that I was studying the curriculum, but I wasn't really. I was building software to help other people study the curriculum. And if you look at my GPA through med school, actually, In first year, I was getting sixes and sevens, which are like distinctions or high distinctions, depending on where you're listening from. And then second year, it was like fives and sixes. And then third year, it was like fours and fives. And then by fourth year, I was just scraping by. And I think that reflects a couple of things. But in particular, I guess this developing interest in things that were not (laughs) strictly academic medicine. And yeah, so I didn't really do any formal training. I did do one computer science course in my undergrad, but funnily enough, by the time that I had done that course, I was actually probably well ahead of the um, type of content there. And I don't think it's essential to formally learn software engineering or really any skill nowadays, with, with the exception of things that require registration, like medicine or law or accounting or whatever. But with the amount of information that's out there, for the people listening, I guess, if you want to learn software or you want to learn how to do sailing or you want to learn how to do knitting or start a website or whatever business there's so much information out there that you don't necessarily need a formal qualification i think it's a very medically minded thing to assume like a lot of i see a lot of posts and even in creative careers in medicine and other online communities where the first port of call for a doctor to acquire a new skill is oh where can i pay someone pay some university an exorbitant fee to try and learn this thing or i want to start a business where's a good course that i can do to go and start a business what you really need to do is hit the ground running and and with the amount of freely available information out there i don't think that you really need to do that in a formal way unless you absolutely want to but i think for most people that reflects a I think doctors feel very safe in that environment. They feel very safe in an academic course exam oriented environment because they know they can do really well there because doctors are basically experts in taking exams. And so when I see that, I do just wonder if people are using that as a bit of a way to, I guess, um, understandably not want to stick their neck out into the world and take a chance. So take a chance. (laughs) That's such a good insight. I hadn't thought about it like that, but it's very true. We do love our courses. Absolutely. Um, I'm interested if any of those other projects 
prior to Go Locum are still active and still being used? Yeah, they are. One of the things that you learn in software engineering is anyone can write software. Anyone can write software to make something work. And when I say anyone, anyone who puts a month of time, worth of time into something can make something that works or works. Where the real skill is, is actually in creating software that is maintainable. And what I mean by that is obviously as time goes on, operating systems get updated, security vulnerabilities are identified. And what it basically means is you have to continuously maintain a lot of those. You have to continuously work on these software projects, otherwise they break and they die. So probably about, probably more than half of the things that I have written over the years are in a graveyard, so to speak. I've still got all the, the source code there, but for whatever reason, no longer operate at the quality that they once did. I have a couple of projects from a foregone era that still operate and I still maintain actually. One of them is an app called Olog. So a little bit of a shameless plug here for it's a shift tracker and overtime log. So at a lot of the hospitals that I worked at that all use paper timesheets and you'd have this scrunched up paper timesheet in your work bag that would travel with you to and from work and generally get destroyed. And then you would hand that into someone and have no record of what you'd submitted. And so I was between handwriting on these sheets and having a notes on my phone and taking photos of the timesheets that I'd submitted, basically it was a big mess. And so I made an app that sort of records the shifts for you and then you just hit submit and it fills out all the Queensland Health Overtime paperwork and submits it to you. So that submits it to your employer. So that's one project that I've got and that's still operating. It actually has a lot, it's probably one of the main ways that overtime is claimed at a lot of Queensland hospitals, which is a lot of public Queensland, or at least a few Queensland hospitals, which is cool. And then I have another thing that doesn't actually get too much use anymore because it was never even that useful. It's a thing called Rapid AF, was Rapid Access to Forms. So at Toowoomba, one of the qualities that made a very good resident or intern was knowing where the paper forms are stored on each ward. And they're non-standard, mind you. So if you're on Ward 2, the Echo request this year, but if you're on Ward 3, then it's in a different pigeonhole in a different location over here. And when I realized that knowing where the forms were was a quality that made a good intern that had to change as well so i started indexing all these forms so i'd go and find them and store them onto my server and then i made a phone app where people could browse those forms and then just tap which ward they were on and that would print from that ward or more specifically it would print from the fax machine because by printing from the fax machine it meant that i didn't have to integrate with Queensland Health in any way. I could just send a fax from my server to the fax machine that they were on. So I walked all the way through Toowoomba Hospital and I got every fax machine number. I wrote them all down into a database and then, yeah, added that to the app as well. And so then you could just be like, huh, I need a colonoscopy consent and I'm on Ward 3, bang, go. And it would print from the fax machine. Unfortunately, there's lots of problems with fax, like the quality degrades a lot. and It's a bit unreliable, like it can take eight minutes to print a fax, to fax something. And so I hit a bit of a crossroads with that project where I was like, I can try and I can probably do this like 12 to 18 month process where I try and integrate into the Queensland health printing system, which they would probably never allow because it's really that have to give me access to their network, which would be this huge cybersecurity thing that I just wasn't ready to digest, I guess. That's an example of one of those innovations that was not really going to be able to go anywhere inside a hospital system. Like it was cute and did solve a problem for a a cohort of the staff, like normally the most junior residents, but wasn't something that I guess was a hospital's number one priority, which I totally understand. So I put that one on the wayside a little bit, although it still operates. 
And then what else? I had a thing called Daily Medical Trivia. This was one of my main projects while I was at med school, actually, the thing that I used to distract myself from my study or tell myself that I was studying. And so it was kind of like Candy Crush meets med school. So there was all these, if, those of you who've played Candy Crush, is there's this sort of big long path of these levels of this game that you have to play where you switch the candies around to make sets. But for daily medical trivia, it was quizzes on various topics in medicine. So, there'd be like a cardiology quiz and you had to answer a few questions on that and then it would go to infectious diseases or respiratory or whatever. And I think I had about 4,000 levels in there because what I did is I took the questions from that practice exam generator that I was talking about previously and I was like, huh, how can I like repackage these into some other thing? And so, by that point, I had, I don't know how many questions I had there, thousands and thousands of questions in that practice exam generator. And so, I bundled them up into this other app and surfaced that. And there's a handful of other things, like I've got a couple of websites, like this very simple calculator to help people prescribe the specifically right number of prednisone tablets when you want to give someone a weaning dose of prednisone. I think I did that in my first month of internship before I realized that it doesn't matter if you give someone a few extra prednisone tablets. <laughs> but that was me, just my type A person. I'd be like, huh, I want to give the perfect amount of prednisone tablets without a single dollar of waste. So yeah, there's a handful. There's a few more too, but those are probably the ones that have the most life in them. There's plenty of other things that I've tinkered with. And every time I start talking about it, I was like, oh, there's actually one more that's worth mentioning is a, um, depending on where you work, you might have at your hospital, you might have a Rotem or a TEG device, which helps you essentially evaluate the quality of blood in the setting of coagulopathy. So if really, if the blood is too thick or too thin, and these tests spit out an array of numbers that can be a little bit difficult to interpret. And this app helps you interpret those numbers. It's quite a, this was probably the first remotely clinical thing that I made. It spits out these numbers and then based on the numbers and by using the app to decipher the numbers, you can determine whether you need to give full blood cells or platelets or cryo or whatever you need to give in that, in that is it a trauma, is it an obstetric emergency it helps you give the right blood products in an emergency. So that one, and that one gets a lot of use all over the world. Not a lot of use, but because it's quite a niche need, but in its domain, it's quite widely used and has users. There was a bug and it went down for a while and I got an email from Costa Rica and one from Italy saying, oh, hey, Josh, can you fix your app? I use it every day. And I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but those are a few examples of the side projects that have come up over the years, yeah. That's incredible. I'm impressed that you made it through med school and internship whilst doing all of that. I only scrape by. I scrape mm. by. <laughs> still, <laughs> still, either way, that's impressive. I want to learn a bit now about how Go Locum came about. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a perfect storm in many ways. So this is going back probably 18 months or so now. I had just had that background experience of trying to grow a lot of innovations inside a public hospital setting and got into a bit of hot water with a couple of them or one in particular anyway. So, I was feeling pretty jaded and all a little bit cynical about the prospects of that sort of thing going forward. And so, I'd made this decision that I wasn't going to try and do that in that way anymore. I wasn't going to grow them inside a public hospital setting. And I guess the thing that I was spending most of my non-clinical time on was Olog, which is that shift tracker. And I was really trying to help that become a thing and maybe one day expanding its scope and trying to make that a much bigger thing than it is now. And that was happening. It was just happening very slowly. And I guess when you're taking this quote unquote risk with your career, I was feeling a lot of pressure to make something legitimate or make something big to almost justify this kind of quote unquote silly career move that I'd made. 
And so I started looking around at what are the industries that are immediately adjacent to the public hospital sector where my insights can still be very valuable, but they don't sit completely inside of a public hospital because of all the issues that relate to that I've already mentioned. And I settled on this field of recruiting, locum onboarding, I guess, general workforce administration as some areas of great interest because A, they're so large, B, every single hospital has those needs and C, I don't think it's done well. It's done in a very manual and painstaking way. And then around the same time, my now co-founder, a lady by the name of Phoebe Bardsley, who is actually engaged to a guy named Ed Stoyos, who I went to med school with. She sent me a cold message on Facebook and she'd sort of already been very, very interested in startup in innovation and healthcare. And Ed at the time who was locuming had encountered a lot of the barriers in locum work, things like Excel spreadsheets with thousands and thousands of jobs in them that may not be related to you being emailed every day. They email to you every day in a, almost a spammy kind of advertising way. The difficulties of getting credentialed at a new hospital. The famous thing is like your recruiter or the hospital will send you this email that's like, hey, like, welcome. We just need to do a bit of work to get you on board. Please attach the following 15 things in a reply email and make sure these are JP certified. And basically the back and forth around getting credentialed was really, really painful. And then on the other side to that, you had, I guess, this an Australia in crisis when it comes to medical, both just medical and nursing workforce in terms of our distribution, the burnout post-COVID, a lot of regional centres, regional towns who can't recruit GPs, hospitals who, or towns that are going out without access to healthcare because the systems to populate those hospitals with doctors and nurses are failing. And so I guess it was a perfect combination of all of those things, my desire to be outside of the hospital system, a clearly broken and inefficient industry. And then I guess the other side to it as well, in med school, I was quite involved in the global health group at UQ called Time. Shout out to Time people if you're listening. And that, I guess I did really appreciate the health equity side to this as well. If we could build a system that could mean that a hospital has medical coverage more reliably, whether it's a regional center or a remote community, that would be really satisfying. And if I couldn't do all of those things, and find a way for me to capture some of the value, I make this an actual legitimate career path, then absolutely I would do that. And so Phoebe sent me this message, said, hey, we should start something. By the way, there's this UQ startup accelerator. Do you want to apply? And if you read the sort of the criteria for this accelerator, there's lots of things that it's like, we want companies that have already got revenue and are a real thing and are a lot further ahead than we were, where we just had a sort of a few ideas on a napkin. We applied and we got into this interview and I can remember we'd said to each other before the interview, we're just going to fake it till we make it. And we got in there and I don't, th- don't know if we lied, but we certainly gave a few half-truths and maybe look more leaned into, I guess, our CVs rather than the actual merits of this theoretical business that may or may not have existed yet. Yeah, and we got into this accelerator and that was a whirlwind. It was a lot of hard work. It was really fast-paced, but it connected us to some incredible entrepreneurs who have really helped us or back then helped us take it from a few ideas on a napkin right through to what it is today, which is a company that has revenue. We've got relationships with about 30-something hospitals in New South Wales and a handful in the other states with plans to expand nationally. We're waiting on a Tasmanian tender at the moment to get added to the list of approved agencies in Tasmania and a technology product that no one else in our industry has, that goal of surfacing these vacancies 
in an Airbnb like interface is well and truly alive. And I believe we're the easiest way to get credentialed for locum work in Australia. I promise that'll be the end of the sales pitch. But I guess <laughs> that's been the journey. That's been that journey through a bit of cynicism and that accelerator right through to yeah where we are today. Yeah, incredible. Did you get much pushback from the public hospitals as you tried to get registered with them? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's two sides to that. The first side is that because of the, I guess, the workforce, unfortunately, the workforce crisis that we're in at the moment, hospitals are absolutely desperate for efficient systems to deliver them doctors in a timely fashion and the right doctor in a timely fashion. I guess that's on the operational level, however. That's at the level of the Sue or Thomas or Dave who are inside the hospital trying to fill the roster. Those people are really any help that you can provide to them, especially when they're in a pinch, they're very appreciative of that. And they also have a large amount of appetite for change. They want to do it in a more efficient way. I guess you have the other side to this, which is still an important side, but can be sort of interpreted as a barrier. And I guess that's the quality assurance side to all of this. We've had, unfortunately, had a handful of incidents over the last probably one to two decades of people practicing in roles that they probably shouldn't be a few sort of yeah, credentialing disasters. It's often in the context of a regional center that's really reeling to get staff and then someone who maybe overestimates their experience when they're applying for a certain role. Maybe it's a high attractive pay rate or maybe they've got this narcissistic tendency. I don't know. And so on that side, there are a lot of quality control barriers in place. One is that your recruitment agency is subject to audits. There are certain standards you have to apply the one of the challenges in our industry is that yes there are these blanket requirements for to work as a doctor your vaccinations and your qualifications what have you but then in addition to those blanket requirements each and every hospital has its own subtle variations of that yes we need that information but it's in this format on this form and navigating all of that has been really challenging so when you say have i had pushback I wouldn't say that the individual employees i guess have been pushing it back against us but we have encountered repeated bureaucratic barriers and this journey i guess working primarily with public hospitals is like getting repeated certainly running a startup that wants to work with public hospitals it's like repeatedly getting punched in the belly every time a new barrier pops up and that's been painful but i think by this point we've got some pretty thick skin and we've got some pretty thick resolve and i was talking before about those background demons of wanting to make this I wanted to show the world that this silly career choice was worth it. And I guess those doubting things inside of you that when you get punched in the stomach with some new thing, oh, you can't do something here until you get onto this tender and the tender doesn't open for two years time. That Those demons really start to come out a little bit. You're like, oh gosh, like it's going to be two years before this can be anything. My co-founder Phoebe and I, we have very, I think she has a lot of strengths that are not my strengths and I have strengths that are not her strengths. And what that means is that when one of us is really down in the dumps or having this problem, often the other person can pick up that slack. And we've had this dynamic in our partnership where we have this pendulum has almost swung in terms of the most important responsibilities for our business at a certain time. There was a time where the software development for GoLocum was the absolute number one priority and it's still a priority for us. But I guess there are other things now that are rate limiting our growth, you could say, and having a co-founder who A, can support you psychologically through that roller coaster, and B, has a complementary skill set is something that if for the people listening who do want to start a startup, it's something that I really, really value and I'm thankful every day that I've got a great co-founder like Phoebe. Incredible. Is it just the two of you working on it at the moment or do you have a bit of a team behind you? Yeah, so we have us two are the only founders. We have a third person who works with us who has, of all of having just spoke about Phoebe's and my strengths and weaknesses, 
the really big hole that we had was in recruiting. So we work with a medical recruiter who's got, well, I think, almost 10 years of medical recruitment in Australia, which is really, he's got a lot of, his name's Ian, shout out to Ian if you're listening. He has a lot of insights into the to the recruitment industry, knows how things work and has relationships. And I, I don't think being naive in this context is necessarily a bad thing, but Phoebe and I kind of waltz into the industry, really looking at Ed's experience and saying, ah, oh, we could do that better. And then, and I think that was a true statement, but I don't think we realized how much blood, sweat and tears we're going to have to go into getting to where we are now and probably are going to have to continue to happen for the foreseeable future. And so I guess Ian was really, has been huge for us, really insightful in, in delivering yeah, insights that have allowed us to navigate those hurdles in as smooth a way as possible. For someone who's previously gone through the process of starting his own medical recruitment agency. And so he'd been through the auditing and he'd been through getting insurance and signing contracts with hospitals and all these kind of things that I find unfun anyway, paperwork, proposals, tenders, all that kind of stuff that Phoebe is really good at. Having someone like that has been great. I guess outside of that, we are really thinking about a different model for how we want to run our company. I don't have ambitions for this to be a Silicon Valley startup that reaches a unicorn valuation and employs 100 people and I guess gets to that level. We really want to, uh, I guess, avoid hiring people as much as possible because at the moment we have so much flexibility with the way that our work life works. We have, there's no reason for us to be constrained to Monday to Friday, eight till four hours. We can literally work as much or as little as we want at the moment. I think once you start to add more people to the team and payroll and HR and not saying you can't still have that, but I think the dynamic changes. So for us, it's far more important to obviously we need to earn a living. So obviously the business needs to be viable, but it's far more important to us to have flexibility and freedom in our life like phoebe goes surfing like whenever she feels like it or hiking in the middle of the week and that's okay we can take the slack or i go travel or i go into a locum of my one of my own locums and for us it's worth it it's worth it to sacrifice leave some money on the table in exchange for the amount of freedom that we get from that there probably will come a time where we will need to hire more but for now (laughs) we're trying to avoid that as much as possible that sounds like a pretty incredible work-life balance yeah, absolutely. Anything that involves surfing in the middle of the day. <laughs> Sold. Tick. Yeah. yeah. For my final question, we ask this to everyone that comes on the show. If you were to pursue a career outside of medicine, which for you includes health tech and software engineering and everything you're currently doing, what would you do? I think there's probably a couple of things that I could say. I think knowing if I look at how my life is, let's say my adult life has played out over the last 10, 12 years, I think the only thing that I couldn't get away from would be applying software engineering in the way that I am today. Like I've been asked a few times at various events, what's your absolute dream career? Like, what do you absolutely want to do? And I think they're expecting an answer like, oh, I'd be an astronaut or I'd, I don't know, I'd be a spy or something like that. And yes, would I consider those things? Sure. But honestly, I think it's the type of thing that I'm doing today. I really like applying software to unknown, new and exciting problems. And in particular, watching people derive value from the things that I've created. And so I think the career that I would follow is exactly what I'm doing now. It would be either founding a startup using my strengths in software and my knowledge in clinical medicine, or perhaps joining an early stage startup in some capacity as a either as a co-founder or just an early employee, because I really like the dynamic fast pace. I like the new and exciting problems. And I like the really enjoyed that challenge of applying problem solving to potentially problems that have never been solved in the way that you're trying to. You know, I think in medicine, we do get the ability to problem solve, 
But if you try to solve a problem in a way that's never been done before, then people start to look at you weird and start telling APRA about things. You know, we don't get the same dynamics in the types of problems that we solve in medicine as we do in software development or, or startup land or any of those things. So sorry for the blame answer, but it's exactly what I'm doing now. Can't ask for much more than that. <laughs> Job satisfaction. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Josh. It's been great to chat to you. Thanks so much for having me, Elise. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Visit the Creative Careers in Medicine website in the show notes of this episode for more resources to help you find the courage, confidence and skills to take control of your career and forge your own unique path. The Creative Careers in Medicine podcast acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, water and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. 